Hello, this is a podcast from SCC English, the English department of St. Columbus College, Dublin in Ireland. It's our blog at sccenglish.ie. Welcome to the SCC English podcast number seven. This is Julian Gurdon from St. Columbus College with the fourth of our short sessions attempting to prompt ideas and reflections about the play Macbeth. This week's podcast leads on naturally from last week's, in which I discussed ideas of law and order in Shakespeare's world, as we see them in Scotland, first under Duncan's rule, and then, of course, in their perversions under Macbeth. The idea of kingship is crucial to the cultural context of this play, and so today I'd like to move on to the two other kings of the play. One of these, Edward of England, we don't see, but we do briefly hear of. The other is, of course, Malcolm, the man who takes over from Macbeth at the end of the drama, ridding Scotland of its tyrant, and is the medicine of the sickly wheel, and who therefore might be considered the play's hero. Act 4, scene 3, is the only scene set outside Scotland, and it's by far the longest scene in the play. So bear with me now briefly for some statistics. There's a summary of these on our blog at sccenglish.ie. Please note that line counting depends on the edition of the play you're using. I want to compare Macbeth, Shakespeare's shortest tragedy, to Hamlet, his longest. The Comedy of Errors, by the way, is the shortest play. Macbeth is a play that is not only short, but has an extraordinary number of scenes considering its length. So Macbeth has 28 scenes, with an average of 63 lines each. Hamlet has just 20 scenes, with an average of 193 lines per scene. Macbeth, in total, has 1,755 lines. Hamlet is 3,856 lines long. So Macbeth is just 45% the length of Hamlet. The most dramatic and important scenes in Macbeth are extraordinarily short. The crucial Act 1, Scene 7, the subject of the first of these podcasts, is just 82 lines long, and the amazing murder scene, Act 2, Scene 2, just 74 of the most tense and brilliant lines ever written. All these short, almost staccato scenes are for a purpose, of course. Shakespeare does know what he's doing. They enact the hectic, headlong descent of Macbeth into moral horror, just as the leisurely stretched-out scenes of Hamlet enact the prince's uncertain procrastination. The play Macbeth is all about speed, the way the central character o'erleaps obstacles, the way he suppresses the pause of reason, the way he tries to stop thinking so that he doesn't stop doing. When Macduff escaped his clutches, he says, The flighty purpose never is o'ertook unless the deed go with it. From this moment, the very firstlings of my heart shall be the firstlings of my hand, and even now, to crown my thoughts with acts, be it thought undone. The castle of Macduff I will surprise, seize upon Fife, give to the edge of the sword his wife, his babes, and all unfortunate souls that trace him in his line. No boasting like a fool, this deed I'll do before this purpose cool. His aim here is for there to be no pause between thinking and doing. So why, given this wonderfully taught writing for the first three acts, does Shakespeare then write a scene of 240 lines, much of which seem repetitive, and which is dominated by slightly tedious and odd testing of Macduff? 
Act 4, Scene 3, is, as I said earlier, the only scene set outside Scotland, and it comes almost as a pause in the action, a holiday from the grim, intense darkness of the earlier scenes. For a start, even the weather and the light seem different in England. The first line is Malcolm's, Let us seek out some desolate shade, and there weep our sad bosoms empty. So this is a place where there's so much light that you need to hunt for shade, whereas in Scotland darkness seems to hunt you down, a force for which we might borrow Milton's famous paradoxical phrase from Paradise Lost, darkness visible. So here at last are two of the possible heroes of the play, the rightful heir and a decent patriotic thane, who has made clear earlier his distaste for and distrust of the new king, and who then went to England for help. And in the end between them, these two men do indeed serve the main functions of a hero. Macduff takes revenge and kills Macbeth, and Malcolm replaces him on the throne. But whether they feel like heroes is another matter. Let me now read a paragraph from one of Tony Tanner's superb Everyman introductions to the plays. There is a strong Elizabethan feeling that virtue is associated with stillness, or slow, decorous movements. Macbeth creates a fearful world in which all those under him or under his sway can only float upon a wild and violent sea each way and move. It is in the context of this vortex of violent motion created by Macbeth that one must understand the long, slow, seemingly pointlessly protracted scene between Macduff and Malcolm in England. As a critic very aptly describes it, the scene is like a slow eddy on the edge of a swift current. As Malcolm explains, he cannot trust anything or anyone emerging from Macbeth's darkened Scotland. Modest wisdom plucks me from over-credulous haste. The play starts in haste and seems to get ever vertiginously quicker, but here it is laboriously slowed down. The tide is beginning to turn. As Tony Tanner points out, the Malcolm we now get to know properly for the first time is very cautious, a man of modest wisdom, who doesn't hurry anything. We've hardly known him until now. We saw him only briefly in Scotland previously, learning in Act 1, Scene 2, that he was in captivity during the war. Not much of an action hero then. And seeing him appointed Prince of Cumberland, in Act 1, Scene 4. Most importantly, we saw his reaction after his father was killed. In Act 2, Scene 3, it's left to Macduff and Banquo to express the real horror about the regicide, while Malcolm only weakly replies to Macduff's Your Royal Father's Murdered with Oh, by whom? A single stunned phrase before he and his brother Donald Bain decide to flee. He says... Our safest way is to avoid the aim, and this caution, or modest wisdom, is all we know of him so far, not exactly McSuperman. Malcolm's long testing of the unimaginative and eventually bewildered Macduff is, we might feel, only proper. We've had enough of someone who's suppressed his pauser reason. Malcolm pinpoints exactly what is wrong with Macbeth's rule in his statement Boundless intemperance in nature is a tyranny. And in his lines on kingship, he accurately sets out the king-becoming graces. Justice, verity, 
temperance, and so on. The third in that list harking back to the crucial idea of moderate balance in nature. We have every reason to believe that he will be a decent king, patriotic and certainly not self-serving. Let me turn for a moment to the fourth image of kingship we have in the play, the description of the English King Edward. He is described by a lord in Act 3, Scene 6 as most pious, and by Malcolm in Act 4, Scene 3 as a man who cures the strangely visited people who come to see him. Quote, How he solicits heaven himself best knows, but strangely visited people, all swollen and ulcerous, pitiful to the eye, the mere despair of surgery he cures, hanging a golden stamp about their necks, put on with holy prayers, and to spoken to the succeeding royalty he leaves the healing benediction. With this strange virtue, he hath a heavenly gift of prophecy, and sundry blessings hang about his throne that speak him full of grace. So, obviously, he's the very opposite to Macbeth. If Edward is an ideal king, how will the Malcolm we are getting to know in Act 4, Scene 3, measure up? Fintan O'Toole, in his book Shakespeare is Hard, But So Is Life, is damning. Quote, Malcolm is the embodiment of the order that is to be restored, the, the play's location of act of goodness. But there is an enormous tension for anyone watching the play between what we know about Malcolm and what we feel about him, between what he says and the way he says it. We know that he is good, but we feel that he is boring. We agree with what he says, but wish he would either get on with it or say it with even a little of the poetic force Macbeth can manage. Morally, we are on his side. Dramatically, we are against him. We want him to win, but we don't want to have to listen to him. Macbeth moves quickly and feels deeply. Malcolm moves slowly and has no capacity for deep feeling whatsoever. As Fintan O'Toole suggests, in real life we'd be on Malcolm's side, warmly welcoming him, indeed as the medicine of the sickly wheel, as Caithness calls him in Act 5, Scene 2. But this isn't real life, it's a drama and a tragedy. And as we listen to his bland and clichéd comforting of Macduff, following the slaughter of the latter's family, we're unlikely to feel our hearts lift. Question. Imagine Shakespeare had written a sequel to this play that had just been rediscovered. How excited would you be in seeing it if you heard its title was Malcolm? Act 5, scene 9 is the final one of the play, where he takes power. Now we're back to short scenes again, just 41 lines in which to make us feel that the natural order has been restored. Here's Fintan O'Toole again. This is almost an exact echo of Duncan's speech near the beginning of the play, when the earlier battle is concluded, the succession to the throne is settled, a traitor beheaded, MacDonald, rewards are promised and titles are given out. Malcolm speaks his last speech with a battle won, the succession to the throne settled, a traitor beheaded, Macduff has just come in with Macbeth's head, and in it he promises rewards and distributes titles. And we know what happened after Duncan's speech. Instead of being a prelude to peace, order, and a smooth handing on of the crown, it was a prelude to treason, disorder, and the seizing of the crown by Macbeth. So, does anyone in the audience join in that call of Hail, King of Scotland? When the lights go up, do we all smile at each other, that everything's worked out 
all right in the end. The crucial importance of Malcolm in this play is not as a hero. There's only one character who constantly grabs our attention. And this is the key thing. Shakespeare does not present us with any figure who in the end distracts or detracts from him. Not Lady Macbeth, who gradually fades from importance. Not the witches, last seen in Act 4. Not the bluff, decent Macduff. And not the responsible, humane, and in the end, ordinary Malcolm. When we leave the theatre, only one man is in our minds. Complex, poetic, imaginative, horrifying, murderous, and tragic. <laughs>